Uh, welcome, welcome to the fourth and final installment of our uh, lecture series on Islam, terrorism, and uh, democracy. Uh, I want to thank once again everybody who's contributed to the funding for this, uh, the Honors and Scholars Program, uh, which started it all out, which gave us the initial funding to make this possible, and then the Mershon Center uh, and the Middle East uh, Studies Center and also the Department of Political Science. Um, our speaker today is uh, the youngest, uh, most junior of the four speakers. I didn't think about this before, but in looking at the at the um, uh, at the schedule for the speakers, it was in order of seniority. And so, uh, so, so the the oldest and uh, most long tenured uh, person spoke first, and then the second, and the third, and uh, and finally uh, today's speaker is uh, is not yet tenured, at least according to the. Uh, um, to her website, so uh, she is certainly the most junior of the uh, the four speakers, uh, but not most junior, I think, uh, in her wisdom or uh, knowledge about uh, the subject that uh, we are going to be discussing, as you are about to see. Jillian uh, Schweidler is assistant professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland at College Park. She received her PhD in politics from NYU in 2000. <clears throat> her publications include three edited uh, volumes, uh, Understanding the Contemporary Middle East, Towards Civil Society in the Middle East, A Primer, and Islamist Movements in uh, Jordan. She's also uh, currently chair of the Board of Directors of the Middle East Research and Information Project, uh, which you many of you have probably heard of because it publishes uh, the well-known quarterly journal Middle East uh, Report. Um, her research interests include protests and policing, political Islam, social movements, democracy and democratization, identity, political culture, and transnational public spheres. She's been doing research um, on Islamism, Islamist political parties, and in particular on uh, the ways in which we can understand those parties moderating. Uh, and she's focused uh, primarily on Yemen and Jordan and has done about three years of fieldwork in those two countries. Uh, her, she has a book forthcoming uh, from Cambridge uh, University Press, her own book this time, not an edited uh, book, uh, called Faith and Moderation. Um, it's a great uh, title, and I eagerly await the, uh, the uh, book. She's going to talk about uh, that book today. Uh, Jillian. Yes. Uh-huh. Went out. There's the clock. <clears throat> so about 40 minutes. So when, the, when the big I, I, hand starts approaching <laughs> the 12, <laughs> you'll be about done. Alrighty. Um, thank you for the introduction. I guess I am the most junior scholar of this speaker series, but my undergraduates are half my age, so I, I can't live in the fantasy that I'm, you know, young anymore. Um, but there you have it. Um, I think it's interesting the way the, the sessions have been structured as well because my project um, has a lot in common with the last speaker and so hopefully that should stimulate some discussion and, um, and points of comparison between our two projects. <clears throat> Among the most abiding concerns in the field of Middle East studies has been this question of democratization uh, and in particular the role of Islamic parties in democratization. 
The debate has been particularly whether Islamic groups should be included or excluded from these uh, emerging democratic processes. And this raises the question of the paradox of democracy. So the paradox of democracy is basically the idea that a group could come to power only to overturn those institutions that brought them to power, or as we say, one man, one vote, one time. Um, In the Middle East and increasingly elsewhere in the world, the potential for Islamic groups to act in this way is most typically um, raised as a concern about moving democratic processes forward too quickly. And this is true, certainly, those of you following Iraq, but also um, in Lebanon, Egypt, uh, elections in Palestine, Turkey, Algeria is an obvious case, and many other countries. So it's it's a question that's raised repeatedly. There's actually a vast body of literature that examines Islamist movements, um, and the overwhelming consensus, as you're probably familiar with, is that all Islamic groups are not alike. And that's uh, made so frequently, it's almost a banal observation. But I want to mention a few things about that. For one thing, most Islamic groups have never sought radical change. If you identify radical change as trying to overturn existing systems entirely as opposed to working within existing uh, systems, um, then most of them were never radical in the first place. Radicals are the exception. Of course, they're very important, and we don't want to downplay um, the um, tactics and strategies and agendas they have. But by all counts, they remain very small, limited, and typically fringe groups. Another point to emphasize is that Islamist groups that do participate in elections typically do very poorly. Uh, a large turnout or a large um, victory would be 35 to 40%, um, and often they do much worse. And what's more important is in countries where you have repeated Islamist participation in elections, they tend to do worse over time or hold steady 20 30%, something like that. But they tend to do worse over time, and this would suggest that For regimes concerned about Islamist groups, maybe you should bring them into the system and subject them to political uh, criticism for their political behavior and actions. How effective have they been? Have they really been able to improve the system? Typically, not so much, and publics are quite savvy about this, and and then respond with their votes. And most importantly about this very, very, very vast literature on Islamist groups is that they tend not to be the real obstacles to democratic reform. Um, Certainly it's a point of concern, but the typical real obstacles are repressive regimes that do not want to open up the system, that do not want to move themselves out of power. And the Islamic threat is often raised not just in Western foreign policy circles, but by repressive regimes as a justification for why we shouldn't open the system, look what's going to happen, they're going to come to power. Um, Before I go on, uh, let me say a bit about democratization in the region, uh, given that this is one of the overriding themes of the lecture series on this paper and, of course, literature on politics in the Middle East. Um, Democratization was the major preoccupation of Middle East politics in the 90s, and it really continues today. Um, despite claims by people such as Thomas Friedman, who says no one's taken seriously these obstacles. Um, and there's another, a number of other people who make this claim as well. In fact, the, the simplest search in a library will show that there are hundreds and hundreds of books, probably thousands of books, and thousands, certainly, articles on democratization. Um, looking systematically at questions such as the resilience of authoritarianism, 
the emergence, existence, and role of civil society, um, the relationship between politics and economic reform, democratization, um, hardliners, softliners, moderates, radicals, etc. There's a huge body of literature on this. Um, as an example, I served as a program officer on a research project on civil society that was a four-year project. Uh, where we had over two dozen case studies. Uh, it was published by Brill in a multi-volume set, and we looked systematically not only at the existence of civil society and the diversity of these groups throughout the region, but really tried to examine such sticky uh, questions as, are Islamists part of civil society? Are tribes part of civil society? Um, no particular agreement um, was reached in this, but uh, we really have been looking systematically at these tough questions for some time. And I think that's worth uh, noting. Uh, at the time, the response, when I would tell people I was working on civil society in the Middle East, the response was, how can you talk about democratization in the Middle East? That's an absurd question. And today, of course, the response is very different. Everybody wants to talk about democratization in the Middle East. So in some ways, it's a nice change. Uh, in other ways, it's frustrating for those of us who have been trying to explore these questions for some time. So back to the main subject. The question of the participation of Islamic groups in democratic processes has really been a preoccupation of the field, not only since September 11th, although obviously there's been a lot of interest in it since. Again, hundreds of books and articles have looked specifically at the compatibility of Islam and democracy. Um, these questions are of great political significance, but uh, personally, I don't think we need yet another book, article, or dissertation on the compatibility of Islam and democracy. We've done that. Um, what I think is interesting is to try to look at the question from a different angle. And in my forthcoming book, Faith and Moderation, Islamic Parties in Jordan and Yemen, I approach the question of Islam and democracy, um, indeed, from a different angle. So this is based on three years of political ethnography uh, in Jordan and Yemen um, from the mid-90s to 2000. And I examine what I call the inclusion moderation hypothesis. So the idea that groups that are included in the political system will become more moderate as a result of that inclusion. Um, in this regard, I want to take very seriously the concerns of the paradox of democracy the concerns about including people in the system that might hold agendas um, that would ultimately undo those processes themselves. So the central problem I see is this. How can we tell which political actors are committed to democratic reform and which ones are playing by the rules of the game while they have a secret, alternative, radical agenda? It seems to me that the stakes are very high in determining which groups to include and which groups to exclude. The inclusion-moderation hypothesis suggests that when political actors are included in pluralist processes, they'll become more moderate as a result of that inclusion. In this regard, we'd want to be able to identify which group has meaningfully become more moderate and which groups are merely pretending to be more moderate while remaining uncommitted to democratic norms and processes. And here's where we seem to hit a wall, both theoretically and empirically. First, we can empirically establish when groups are taking advantage of political openings. There's all kinds of evidence of Islamist groups participating in systems, uh, elections, political parties, etc. Um, we can also empirically establish when groups are behaving as if they're committed to pluralist processes and democratic principles. And there's all kinds of evidence of the way groups and non-democratic regimes portray themselves publicly as very committed to democracy. So across the board, there's all of this evidence out there. Um, but the problem seems to be that we cannot know, quote-unquote, what is in their hearts, what they really believe. And here's where the evidence, uh, here's where it's problematic, and this is where we seem to hit a wall. 
If we're concerned that illiberal political groups will exploit democratic processes to obtain power and that they will subsequently abolish those very political processes, again, there's a great deal at stake in knowing when and how moderation has actually taken place, not simply behaving as if you're committed. Um, But if we rely only on what political actors do, again, we cannot distinguish between genuinely moderate actors and radical actors with no commitments to democracy that are feigning that moderation. I would like to suggest that this project is not that hopeless. Uh, And I'm going to argue two points. The first is that we can, in fact, specify a precise mechanism for how a political actor might become more moderate through participation in pluralist political processes. It's not an exhaustive means that this could happen, but it's one way um, of specifying precisely how moderation takes place. Um, And my second point is that we can establish empirically when this moderation has, in fact, taken place. There is evidence. The key is finding it, identifying and finding it. So if I'm correct, uh, we're not really stuck at only trusting what political actors say while not knowing what they really believe. I explore this puzzle of inclusion and moderation through a structured comparative study, structured comparison study of two groups, the Islamic Action Front in Jordan and the Islah Party in Yemen. Um, And I argue that the Islamic Action Front has become more moderate over time, and you can see evidence of its ideological ideological commitments have evolved to become more inclusive and tolerant. And in Yemen, the Islah Party has not. They've both participated in multi-party elections, they've both been included, and yet only one of them is more moderate. So what explains this variation? Before answering the question, let me highlight several issues that emerge in terms of thinking about the paradox of democracy in general and the inclusion-moderation hypothesis in particular. One of my preliminary observations is that much of the literature on democratization in the Middle East has just adopted wholesale the language of transitions to democracy. So we talk about stalled democracy, failed democracy, stalled transitions, reverse transitions, etc., Elite packs, you know, who's bargaining with whom, how far the openings went forward, we've not yet reached consolidation, etc. So it's adopting this sort of teleological perspective, and assessment is made on how far have we moved forward towards democracy or reversed away from democracy. I'm sure you're familiar, there's a recent set of critiques on transitology um, that point to the fact that many of these so-called stalled transitions are in fact quite durable, non-democratic regimes, um, and maybe we should perhaps not characterize them as transitioning anymore. Um, They are said to be in the gray zone of liberalized autocracy, and they can take a variety of forms. One of the models put forward uh, by Thomas Carruthers, for example, is that of dominant power politics. And this is a case that seems to be very familiar to the Middle East, where you have some sort of political opening, the emergence of political parties, some competition for an elected assembly, and yet the same group remains in power. The assembly doesn't really introduce legislation that matters. Um, So you have some kind of opening, but it really doesn't play a role in governance. And I think it's useful to think about these types of um, changes. But um, this gray zone literature, if you call it that, has been effective in critiquing the transitions paradigm, but it still continues to focus on typologies of regimes, what's going on at the regime level, you know, new versions of stalled democracies. And I think it overlooks significant evolution in the broader field of political contestation that results even from strategic elite-led openings. 
What I mean, even under highly constrained openings, political parties are able to organize, they put forth agendas, they seek to mobilize constituents. There's typically an expansion of public debate. Um, the language of democracy is invoked by all types of actors. Um, and I think we need to think systematically about what these changes mean, even though we're in, quote-unquote, stalled situation. Um, attention towards progress towards democracy tells us very little. And at a minimum, my um, comparative study has pointed to the fact to think systematically about these stalled transitions um, Jordan and Yemen are precisely two such cases. <coughs> a second general observation from my book is that the inclusion moderation hypothesis appears in a very wide body uh, range of literature. I'm not going to summarize them here, um, but across a wide range of literature. But usually the precise mechanisms are not specified. Inclusion is the mechanism. Inclusion <coughs> produces moderation. Um, one problem is that arguments of inclusion often suggest a single continuum not only that inclusion leads more to more moderation, but the inclusion will therefore turn radicals into moderates. And so everything's conflated into uh, moderation and inclusion on this end to exclusion and radicalism on this spectrum, and you move between the two. Um, I think conflating inclusion and exclusion in this manner has a tendency to obscure complex processes and it actually offers little in terms of precise hypotheses about the effects of inclusion or of exclusion. So my argument is that we need to unpack these, um, untangle these inclusion moderation uh, hypotheses and exclusion radicalism hypotheses. And to look just at the inclusion moderation hypotheses, there's at least several distinct propositions going on. To give just four examples and not an exhaustive list, you can think, you can hypothesize that inclusion produces moderation by <coughs> one, turning radicals into moderates. So you see both a reduction of radicals and an increase in moderates. Another possibility is inclusion produces moderation by turning fence sitters into moderates. Those who might have gone both way are pulled over towards a moderate camp, but you don't necessarily see a reduction in the number of radicals. Another possibility is inclusion makes moderates more moderate. Uh, yet another possibility is inclusion doesn't change the number of moderates and radicals, but it elevates moderates into the political system where they can be more visible and more effective in promoting their own agendas. So already there's a number of issues that are going on that tend to be conflated, and I, I think it behooves us to separate them. Uh, the last point about... Elevating moderates without actually changing uh, their numbers or decreasing the numbers of radicals points to two other issues that I think need to be systematically examined. And one has to do with the cons uh, constituency or support base for different groups. So perhaps inclusion doesn't change the numbers of moderates or radicals, but it deflates the support bases for radicals by making possible for moderates to achieve agendas, and therefore, therefore you reduce the effect of radicalism even though their numbers may remain the same. Another possibility is in uh, including inclusion moderation is um, restricting the ability of radicals to recruit new members by giving other, again, alternatives for mobilization. So there's a number of issues going on here um, that seriously need to be unpacked. And I think the appearance of moderation may, in fact, have very little to do with whether political actors or their constituencies have actually changed their positions on issues. They've become more moderate. So moderation is not necessarily, uh, in a lot of the literature, it's not necessarily talking about, in fact, moderation, a change of views. Um, 
Inclusion may not turn radicals into moderates or revolutionaries into reformers, but rather deny radicals the support base that provides political advantage. Uh, in Egypt, this has certainly been the case with Gamma Islamiyah and uh, uh, Islamic Jihad, which have considerable followings in a closed system um, where moderate Islamic voices have been excluded from mainstream politics and any number of other cases. Um, this seems to be a very important qualification to the inclusion-moderation hypothesis, it seems to me, um, and one that should be systematically unpacked. In terms of the paradox of democracy, we want to be clear about what processes are actually at work. So I want to focus, again, on the most difficult question, moderation as a change in views, a change of ideology. Um, so what causes moderation? Rather than just the isolation of radical voices, which I think we have a literature that, that quite well illustrates how to isolate radical voices, how that happens. Um, most of the literature, again, relevant to the inclusion-moderation hypothesis, emphasizes the role of institutional constraints in shaping political behavior. Um, it's a very rich literature, and in general, it states that as states liberalize, they create channels for legal participation, which create opportunities for opposition groups to put forth challenges. The cost of entry, however, is playing by the rules of the game. And so political actors take advantage of these openings. They also become constrained um, if they want to remain within this sphere of legitimate political competition. Groups also become constrained by the practical distractions of routine operation, maintaining an office, putting out a newspaper, publishing press releases, etc., um, coordinating with other parties and institutions, organizations, campaigning, um, building relationships with state officials, etc. Um, through these varied mechanisms, political openings are said to provide both opportunities and constraints that support the inclusion-moderation hypothesis. The problem, again, is that the paradox of democracy remains. How can we tell which groups are merely playing by the rules of the game and which ones are not, which ones are harboring a secret radical agenda? Much of the existing literature does not offer a theory or a model for explaining ideational change, that is, how a political actor may come to hold more moderate views or objectives as a result of inclusion. Um, even more important is the counterfactual. Why do similar groups participating in similar processes not become moderate in similar ways, if at all? Explaining this variation, I see, is the real challenge. A third final op uh, observation before I, I explain uh, how I think we can attack this problem. A third op uh, observation is that claims are often made about the effects of inclusion on Islamic groups that were never really radical in the first place. Uh, the Wasat Party in Egypt, for example, is often cited as a, a group that's included, it's moderate, um, they, it's moderate and the government may include it in evidence of why you should have inclusion. I think it might be not moderation per se you're seeing with the Wasat Party, but more moderates breaking away from existing parties. So again, you're not necessarily seeing a change that's explaining ideational change. You're simply seeing moderates breaking away from not-so-moderate groups and taking it in their own direction. Um, Politically, we want to encourage this, but we need to be clear that the Wasit Party, as an example, is not demonstrate, does not demonstrate inclusion producing moderation. So I compare the Islamic Action Front in Jordan and the Islah Party in Yemen, uh, two Islamic groups often cited as evidence of the included, inclusion leads to moderation hypothesis. Um, again, one of the problems is that both of these groups have always been very closely allied with the ruling elite. So... Um, Labeling them moderate simply because they're not using political violence towards the regime fundamentally misses the point. They've always been allied with the regime, so of course they're not going to use violence towards the regime. 
Um, even more, claims that these groups became moderate through inclusion are simply wrong because, one, they were never radical, and two, they were never excluded. The question should be whether each party has become comparatively more moderate than it had been prior to participation in political processes, pluralist political processes. Um, Though the Islamic Action Front and Islah participate in similar processes, I examine internal party documents and publications and conclude that the Islamic Action Front has become more moderate in the 15 years since political opening in Jordan, and the Islah Party has not. So again, uh, here's the core puzzle. What explains variation? Why did one Islamist group become more moderate after beginning to participate in pluralist political processes and another group did not? I argue that there are three factors at work. Two of them are structural and one of them is ideational or cultural. Factor one, the relationship of the regime to the field of political contestation has significant implications for pluralist politics, even in so-called stalled transitions. That means, in Jordan, for example, the ruling party does not compete in the field of elections. Um, it does not have as much at stake as regimes that do. In Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh heads the General People's Congress, Congress, the GPC, and therefore he must at least pretend to win elections, uh, even if everyone recognizes that these contests are more or less performance and not much substance. Even when elected assemblies do not play a real role in governance, indeed perhaps especially when they don't play a real role in governance, the direct participation in the regime in elections renders certain alliances among opposition parties more or less costly. That is to say the following. In Jordan, the Islamic Action Front has since the early 1990s begun to explore a wide range of cooperative alliances with various leftist, liberal, and nationalist parties, even though they remain political rivals in other spheres, and bitter political rivals. Um, in Yemen, by comparison, the Islam Party has flirted with the idea of these alliances with socialist parties, but it's never forged them, in part because in Yemen, joining the opposition is equivalent to being entirely outside of power. My second factor, uh, also a structural factor, and this one has to do with the internal organization and de decision-making practices of each party. Yemen's Islah party is a coalition of tribal, mercantile, and religious interests, and the party is fairly fragmented. It is not unusual for the party's central bureaucracy to issue statements that are directly contradicted by other prominent leaders in the party. In Jordan, by comparison, all major decisions are taken by vote of the Shura Council, um, which is the main decision-making <coughs> body, and sometimes only after considerable and quite contentious debate. And then all major party leaders will adhere to those decisions, even if they dissented during those deliberations. So one example is in 1997, um, the leader of the Islamic Action Front, Ishaq Fahan, uh, opposed boycott. There was a very, they decided to boycott the national elections. He opposed the boycott. He was the leader of the group at the time. It was a very contentious uh, debate. Um, the vote was in favor of the boycott, and so then he publicly supported the boycott, even though he had personally opposed it. Um, in Islah, in Yemen, we see the same party leaders elected over and over, while in Jordan, the Islah leadership rotates every two years, and even the most prominent leaders are eventually voted out of office. Um, again, Ishakar Fahan was very unpopular because he uh, opposed the boycott, and he was voted out. In fact, he was voted not even on the 120-person Shura Council. So the internal party mechanism uh, eliminated his voice at that moment, um, and he was elected on in the future. So there's these two structural factors together. 
the relationship of the regime to the field of political contestation, whether the regime pretends to participate in elections or sits above that field of competition, uh, and the internal organization and decision-making processes of each party. These two factors create the conditions under which each party can realistically explore new relations for strategic purposes that have then subsequently led to shifting ideological positions. Again, what do I mean by this? I argue that the Islamic Action Front has become more moderate in part because it has sought to take advantage of new opportunities, but more importantly, it has sought to justify those actions in terms of the party's central ideological commitments. So I'm distinguishing here not just public justifications, yes, we're democratic, we're committed to the system, but internal debates about what is acceptable in terms of our own commitments, our own ideology, our own long-term agendas. Can we justify this to ourselves? Have we gone too far? Um, For example, the decision to participate in elections was widely debated in 1989. Today it's never even discussed. It's just assumed to be acceptable and fine. Um, But that decision in 1989 created new possibilities to explore alliances with other political actors. At each step, new justifications, new boundaries of justifiable action subsequently create new spaces to explore political actions and alliances that were previously not justifiable. The Islamic Action Front did not immediately ally with leftist and liberal parties following the 1989 elections. If it had done so, these opposition parties together would have had 60% of the parliament. But they did not ally. It would have been logical to ally, but they did not ally at the time. It was unthinkable for Islamists to ally with leftists. It was not explored. Um, So clearly, the logic of institutional constraints does not offer a full sufficient explanation. Only later, after a series of justifications for new actions, gradually we redrew these boundaries of justifiable action, new things became possible. So you accommodate the idea that other voices can exist. Gradually, as a number of justifications happen, working with leftists isn't such a problem anymore. And today you see a wide diversity of Islamist leftist cooperation in Jordan. Um, in Yemen, by comparison, and they still remain bitter rivals in other areas. I mean, they, they launch attacks at each other. They also show up, the leftists and, and nationalists and liberals, many of whom who are personally subject to attack by Islamists, all go to the Islamic Action Front offices once a month for a meeting um, of the opposition bloc, and they meet there because the Islamic Action Front has a conference room and no one else has a place to meet. Um, and then they go off on their own and have their own you know, debates and spats and critique each other. In Yemen, by comparison, the fragmented party organization and the perceived need to remain allied with the regime rather than with the opposition bloc has prevented the Islah party from undergoing the gradual shift in these boundaries over time. So these three factors together, I think, can explain not only why the Islamic Action Front has become more moderate, but more importantly, why the Islah party has not. Again, all of this has happened in both cases under (coughs) dull democracy, Um, but at a first glance, their participation, their inclusion looks very similar, um, and yet I don't think there has been change in the Islah party. The big hand has ten more minutes, right? So let me summarize my main points, and this probably won't take ten minutes. Um, The inclusion-moderation hypothesis conflates a number of processes that need to be unpacked particularly the moderate radical continuum and the precise mechanisms for increased moderation. Many groups have said uh, that have been said to become more moderate through inclusion were never really radical in the first place and therefore are not evidence of inclusion leads to moderation. 
The literature on transitions has focused on regime typology at the expense of attention to changes in the field of political contestation. Structural constraints may help explain some political behavior, but they do not produce, or even more importantly, they do not explain moderation because not all groups participating under the same constraints become moderate in the same way, if at all. The relation of the regime to the electoral competition can shape the logic of opposition alliances. Internal party organization and practices may facilitate or hinder ideological change. Um, Without efforts to justify new political action, and again, internally justify, not for public consumption, internally justify new forms of political action in terms of group ideology, without those efforts, we're unlikely to see ideology evolve over time. And moderation can be explained through the mechanism of redrawing these boundaries of justifiable action, particularly when the process is repeated over a period of time. And, I think most importantly, moderation of ideology and not just behavior can be empirically established with reference to the internal party documents and debates. Um, And these are not subject to the skepticism that are the sorts of rhetoric produced for public consumption. This explanation is not specific to Islamist groups, but in fact identifies a mechanism that may explain how any ideological group becomes less ideological over time, that is, how it may become less rigid in its worldview and more open and more tolerant of alternative um, perspectives. And finally, my explanation is not exhaustive of possible mechanisms. It seeks to offer only one, um, but that one helps get us beyond the paradox of democracy, by showing evidence of real ideological change as opposed to just public representations of self, and also by explaining why change does not take place among groups that are equally included, and I think that's the biggest challenge. So there are very good reasons, both normative and strategic, to promote political inclusion, and I think there is hope for the uh, inclusion moderation hypothesis, but these ideas need to be considerably unpacked and explored systematically through a range of other cases. Thank you. Yes. Now, would you uh, go back to what you said at the beginning? There's two issues. One is they become they change their ideology. The other is they become democratic. Are any of the groups you're dealing with the one man, one vote, one kind, or are they all essentially democratic throughout this? I'm trying to actually talk about this at greater um, length in my book. Is we talk about inclusion often meaning the sort of end point, of, you know, moderation being the sort of liberal democratic end point. Yeah, like us. Right, right. And I'm trying to just see um, from a position that's a sort of very close, narrow, my way or the highway view to I'm more open to different perspectives. There's no suggestion that that's necessarily liberal or democratic, but more open and pluralist. So I'm trying to qualify it in that way. I have an article in Comparative <coughs> Politics with Janine Clark where we actually critique Uh, I didn't bring it in here because I didn't want too many moving parts in my talk, but we critique the terms moderate and radical for the following reason. We tend to label whole groups, like this group is moderate and this group is radical, when in fact, if you look over a number of issues, a lot of the so-called moderate groups are pretty radical on a lot of issues. Are they radical on democracy? Some of them... Well, they tend not to talk about overthrowing democracy. They tend not to address that internally or externally, of course. But even internally, they don't talk about, do we want to overthrow democracy? They might talk about, you know, we want to implement Sharia in government, um, and they have different views on whether that would mean overthrowing democracy or not. But I'm trying to, you know, narrow the scope 
um, to do we see them becoming more open and pluralist and tolerant in their views as one measure of moderation. Um, so you're not dealing with democracy? I don't, I'm, yeah, I'm well short of democracy. Well, we don't have evidence of that, but again, the paradox of democracy is that we don't know. But certainly internal documents and evidence of these two parties, which, uh, again, part of the starting point is these were never extremist radical parties to begin with. The internal evidence is not that they want to overthrow democracy. But more importantly, there's the evidence is that these regimes aren't ever going to get to democracy anyway. So, I mean, there's a number of issues at stake. But the parties are democratic and all the way through. The, the Jordanian party... But they're not going to shoot the opposition. No. Well, the Jordanian party... It's funny you should mention that. The Jordanian party, and it's not, yeah, it's funny, but it's not. Uh, the Jordanian party is very democratic in its internal practices. And that's why I, I try to draw attention to what they're doing internally. They elect their leaders out of power. I mean, Issaq Farhan was elected out and was very pissed off about it um, and campaigned and came back. Uh, in Yemen, that's not happening. You see the same people over and over. You don't see these efforts to kind of reconcile decisions with internal party politics. And the party does, in fact, have some quite extremists um, participating. So uh, shooting each other. Um, in, in, in Yemen, the Muslim Brotherhood trend within the Islah party um, wanted to forge an alliance with the Socialist Party. Nobody else in the party was on board with this idea. So they're sort of having these sort of back and forth discussions with the Socialist Party. You know, uh, Ultimately, they decide we probably shouldn't do this because, as I said, we're going to be out of powder, power. And this is their internal debates. Is, you know, if we ally with the opposition, we're completely out of power. Um, they were already pretty much out of power for a variety of reasons. Um, but some of the Muslim Brotherhood leaders really wanted to pursue this and invited uh, the deputy director of the Yemeni Socialist Party, Jarallah Omar, to address their assembly. Um, and they have a, a general assembly of all the members. Thousands of people show up, and it's every two years. And this was in December 28th of 2002. And Jarallah Omar gave this incredible speech. He's a very committed uh, um, pluralist and reformer, and he's been, he had been advocating in the 80s pluralism within the Yemeni Socialist Party at a time when no one was doing that, and the Yemeni Socialists were killing each other off at the time. So he gave his talk, and he was shot and killed as he left the stage by someone at the party. Um, I think it's you know, evidence that supports what I'm talking about is there's no internal agreement on this is acceptable or not. I mean, some of the groups have come, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood trend had come to the decision that this was perfectly acceptable and an appropriate response given the, the context. Others in the party were never on board with any of these um, changes over time. So it remains a fragmented party. It's, it remains very moderate on certain issues, very radical on other issues. Uh, but I think, you know, evidence of really what I'm trying to explain is the, the variation, you know, both included in similar ways, and yet one does not see change over time at all. Yes? I guess I'm, I'm very confused about what a radical and moderate is. I'm glad you brought this up. It's intentionally particularly in this context. It strikes me that there are really two ways that you seem to be talking about it, one is, is your group or party or whatever anti-system or not? Mm -hmm. Your Nazis coming in and get elected and get by Mars. The other is, do you have what would be called extremist policy proposals, irrespective of whether or not you're mm -hmm. completely committed to a set of institutional rules? Uh, so first off, which of the two is it? And in the context of what our semi-authoritarian regime is talking about, if you're a moderate in the first sense, it means you're committed to semi-authoritarianism. 
And so by definition, if you choose to participate, your collaboration is exonerated. Right. Right, so only a radical. Um, there's no way, you, you can, how could you get inclusion and moderation if there's no radical party or party committed to democracy to participate in the system? And there'd be no reason to because they can't come to power. So there's sort of that dilemma that you pose at the beginning doesn't try to be obtained if you take that definition. Yeah, I mean, actually, I try to address this um, pretty systematically, um, and there's a number of issues. Typically, moderates and radicals are used, as you as you pointed out, with reference to the system. Are you trying to overturn the system or bring change within the in the system? The paradox of democracy points to the second question you raised, which is, do you have ultimate objectives that are in fact radical, even though your strategies and tactics may be moderate? Um, on this this paper in particular, I'm focusing on the um, perspective vis-a-vis the system in terms of overturning the existing system or working within the system. Um, the bigger problem is the, the third one you pointed to, which is if radical is distance from the status quo, then in Iran, for example, the reformers, democratic reformers, are the radicals, and the pro-regime groups would be the moderates, and so those terms just cease to be useful in any meaningful sense. Um, what I try to do um, systematically in my work is to apply them to positions and then define precisely what I mean and leave that to people to determine if that's an effective use or not. My moderate radical distinction here is uh, in terms of ideology, moderation on ideology in this context um, is moving from very <coughs> closed, narrow ideology worldview where my view is the only acceptable view to one that is more open my view's right in my view, but I'm open to the idea that other people might have other alternative possibilities. So um, I think it's necessary to specify precisely what you mean by moderate and radical. Um, I think the, the moderate versus radical continuum binary has very limited use. Um, but I, I try to, I mean, I don't solve everything, but I try to really specify what I mean, which I think most of the literature doesn't. It's taken as evidence. Radicals use violent, moderate don't. And again, the paradox of democracy is precisely on your second point that ultimate radical agendas aren't dealt with adequately in that moderates within the system framework. Is that clearer? Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, I was struck by your identification of yourself as a political ethnographer. Mm-hmm. I was wondering whether you could tell us what political ethnography is and what you actually did in your research. Because in your talk, you just described reading documents. Mm-hmm. I don't think you meant that as ethnography. And I'm wondering whether you could identify who you consider to be the, who are the model ethnographers out there. The only one that came to the top of my head was James Scott. I was wondering whether you consider him to be one. Yeah, I do consider him to be one, and in a very different poll, I consider David Layton to be a political ethnographer. So there's two people, you know, very different methodological commitments, but use political ethnography as a way to interrogate political questions. Um, for me, political ethnography is not just doing field research. It's uh, fluency in a language, long-term, you know, uh, existence on the ground. Um, it's not, I don't claim to be doing participant observation study because, let's just be obvious, I'm not going to be hanging out with, in, with Islamists in a way that people cease to recognize me as a foreigner. So I don't, political uh, ethnography does not necessarily mean participant observation, but it means long-term on the ground, really understanding how people talk about issues, um, what types of issues they're debating, what they do, what types of practices are imbued with what kinds of meanings um, as a way of gaining traction on, you know, complex political processes. Can you give an example of some of the non-textual practices that you're referring to? Yeah, well, I mean, part of the difficulty, of course, is um, 
the richest work in political ethnography is work that you're actually there for hearing debates. And of course, you, I can't go back to 1990 and see exactly what those debates are. So I use um, documents as evidence of what internal debates were at the time. I'll look at not only internal party documents, uh, the programs and agendas that are put forth for their meetings and what issues are debated, but also um, they produced a number of uh, videotapes and cassette tapes of the most contentious internal internal party debates that were available to me so I could actually witness those debates. Um, The ones in particular had to do with... um, In 1991, a new constitution was put forth that did not elevate Sharia Islamic law as the source of of legislation. It was a source of legislation, and they introduced in parliament an amendment to change that, and they lost that. And then they had to make this decision, are we going to withdraw from the assembly entirely, or are we going to accept that leftists and nationalists now just voted on something we consider not open for debate? Um, and it was a very contentious um, debate. It's on video, and they published non- a number of things in their own party newspaper on for and against. So that gives you gets you a little bit beyond just the document issue to see some of those debates. Um, some are also recorded on video cassettes, and these are typically sent to the branch offices throughout the country for you know others to sort of you know see these debates. As you can imagine, they, none of this happens in Yemen. Um, they don't even have these debates, let alone record them. So. Um, you know, it, but they're the same. I mean, uh, anthropology, you know, deals pretty systematically with these difficulties um, in terms of you know oral histories versus documented histories. How how to make sense of them? So what other than words count as practice? What counts as practice? Well, for me, practice is is action. It's in meaningful action, and I'm looking for uh, meaning inscribed in action. What they think they're achieving, what they think they're doing, um, what types of activities they believe they're accomplishing. Uh, whether they see themselves in particular lights or not. Um, and so, you know, it's not simply a words versus behavior. That's why, if you notice, I don't use the word behavior. I talk about practice because uh, action is meaningful. Um, so I'm looking at actions and how, it, as best the evidence I can reconstruct, how they understood what they think they were doing. Yes? Okay. Um, I had two questions, and I don't know this region at all, so they might, might seem naive, but... Um, is the bigger question how can you get parties to um, be included rather than once they're included whether or not they moderate? Um, I mean, are you, are you kind of guilty of kind of looking at an important and in your defense, you say it's a very focused uh, uh, study on a very precise question? Mm-hmm. Um, but does that leave you open to the charge that you know the bigger question is how do we get groups into the system in the first place? Um, is that the bigger problem? Well, there's, an, there's a number of bigger problems um, that I'm trying not to... Not that I'm asking you to resolve yeah, yeah, yeah. everything or anything. No, like I'm particularly that. trying to stay away from them, not because I think they're not important, but because I think all these, there's a number of things that are conflated under them and a number of assumptions. And so part of this, you know, very narrow focusing is trying to unpack what in fact is happening and what can we know and what don't we know. Um, you know, one is, you know, who should be included or why. Another one is what do regimes ever intend by inclusion? You know, the evidence is typically not democracy. Another is, you know, is there a liberal democratic endpoint or some other kind of democratic endpoint? I mean, there's lots of big questions about trajectory, about, you know, what, what, what regimes are trying to do, what opposition groups are trying to do. Um, but again, I think this sort of inclusion moderation <coughs> argument is made so broadly in very, very sloppy way. 
another question. Can you talk a little bit about your theory of how democracies come about? Um, I don't have a theory I mean, of how well, democracies I mean, come about. Well, I, mean, I mean, underpinning your argument is that a normative commitment to democracy among opposition elites is a central component of why regimes become democratic. Or, or you know, because once they get, if they win an election, they'll abide by democratic principles. And you want to... But that's not why regimes become democratic. I mean, that's a different question. the case that once they, be, once, if they, if the Islamic opposition party were to win an election, that they would then abide by the rules of the game. That's no, I don't think that's my argument, that they would. That they're then... Is your argument then about just about moderation then, or is it about democracy? My 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 argument is a theory of ideological change. So, ideological change of policy positions or no stance towards democracy. Those I mean, democracy could be one policy position. You could you know point to any number of policy positions. Those would be issues you'd look at. I'm really trying to understand what would lead a group with a very narrow ideological agenda to become more moderate without setting out and just saying, oh, let's just, we've always been moderate and we're just doing it. How do you get a group with a relatively close perspective, you know, what can explain the ways in which, particularly moderation, not as a, as a blanket theory of moderation, but the inclusion moderation, how through inclusion. Now, what policies would you look at then for, for examples of moderation? I guess that's what I'm trying to write. Well, I mean, the, the one that I talked about here is the the um, justif- whether it's justifiable to work with groups with different ideologies from you, whether that is defensible, whether it's seen problematic or not. And typically it works this way. You know, on Israel, we used to all have our separate protests. Now let's organize it together. Um, on certain issues in Parliament, let's coordinate it. Um, on issues to do with Iraq, let's coordinate it. On other things, we're still working on same issues, but we refuse to cooperate. We work separately. Um, so I think the issue-by-issue issue interest is is interesting, but it's part of the why you need to pull it apart. I wouldn't put forward, like, liberalism or democracy is the issue that we must be attending to. So this, so in your view, this is something that would be more likely to be conducive to democracy or the or do you just want to end it there and say? Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to overstate what I what I'm saying. What what I don't want to overstate the value of what I'm saying and stretch it too thin because I think precisely the problem with the literature is that it's it you know makes these huge leaps that then aren't really justified by the evidence or the explanations. Yes. My question actually follows directly on Tim's, and maybe I'm misunderstanding you in the same way that Tim might have done. I guess. Again, is it, are you assuming that it's a necessary condition for us to be confident about including an Islamist party that it changed its views in a moderate direction? No. Okay, so even if they retain hardline extremist views, we might, um, we have no reason necessarily to assume that they would then overthrow democracy if they came to the power. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay, well that kind of vitiates my other question. Then, I guess. Cool. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, but then I wonder how that really solves the paradox of democracy then. Because if, if it's the case that they don't have to change their views and they might still be okay, then what greater confidence do we have that the paradox will be solved if they have changed their views? I don't solve the paradox of democracy. And let's take Jordan. Again, let's take the harder case because Yemen. Jordan's the case where I argue you have seen moderation. I have no confidence in the conclusion that the Jordanian party would not ultimately want to overturn democracy. I'm saying the types of processes that are here are the types of evidence you would want to see to address the paradox of democracy question. But that suggests that ultimately you need normative change on the part of these groups 
in order to be confident. Right. And we may or may not have gotten there with this particular case. Well, that sounds like you are saying that it is a necessary condition for their eventual feasible inclusion that they have normative change. Well, that they're committed to the processes. In some cases, that is normative change. In others, it's not. That's why I said it's important to specify what the starting point is. Some of them are very committed to the processes, and we have no reason to question. Other ones, we have reason to question. I'm trying to take on the hard cases, not just pick the Wasset party, because it's quite clear they're committed to it. And there's no reason to hold that up as evidence of moderation, because these individuals have been quite committed all along. So I'm trying to really, I guess, put myself on the spot by taking the harder cases. Well, let me actually then ask the question I was going to ask, and I'll go back to the question. I guess I'm wondering why it's important to focus on the change of view. I mean, one of the features of democracy is that through various institutional mechanisms, you get stable, peaceful outcomes, regardless of what people think. They may have tremendous disagreements. They may actually hate the system, and yet the system constrains their behavior in ways, checks and balances, and so on, that you get the more or less stable outcomes at the end of the day. And so I guess I'm wondering, why is it important that normative change take place? Maybe it's not necessary at all for the paradox of democracy to be resolved. Well, because it's sort of the stable outcomes, if you're thinking like the Jaworski model, for example, just as an example, is that there's a commitment to returning to the system even when you fail. So you're not without some kind of commitment to the system. So if you cease to be, you know, the idea is it's a mechanism for processing conflict. If you lose, you'll come back because there's a possibility of winning. That's a normative commitment. I mean, that is some kind of commitment. That is some kind of position on an issue. So short of having that, the system won't, in fact, work. You won't have those equilibriums over time. Okay. Let me go this way because I keep talking this other way. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I touched on it briefly, that the historic relationship of the group to the regime. You know, and they're very different. But in both cases, they've been very closely allied. If you take away the sort of party framework of when they became a party, these people, these groups, were very closely allied with the ruling regimes well prior to political opening. And that's one of the things I think matters tremendously. Again, that doesn't mean you can't necessarily identify change in some sorts of positions. But, you know, let's not hold that up to mean more than it actually means. No, I don't, yeah. Right. My case selection doesn't give me traction on that question because I've sampled on two cases where there is, in fact, an existing relationship. So potentially, but I mean potentially. Okay. Thank you. 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 Thank
Um, and again, you know, in unpacking this, you know, inclusion moderation thing, this is one of the issues, as I said, that we need to more systematically look at. Um, perhaps, but I don't think I can use those cases, these cases, to answer them. Yes. Right, we don't, it's so not an example, we do right. We don't know that because it did not get to that point. Right. Is it a fear to a certain extent? What do you consider that? Is it a what? Is it a, a fear of them coming A fear of them, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's really, in Turkey, for example, even though it's not an Islamist party, twice, uh, Al-Bakan and right now, that's uh, moderately Islamist parties have won the election. But they did not uh, go and really destroy the whole democratic process, relatively, I should say. So they stayed in Sharia. They did not want to walk around Sharia, for example. Uh, so in my view, and also in Yemen and Jordan, when the elections took place, can you tell us the, the percentage? How did they, the Islamist parties do in comparison to other uh, parties? Let's see. bunch of questions. Um, I completely agree that there hasn't been a case of Islamist groups coming to power and overturning it. I think that doesn't satisfy people who raise the Nazi Germany example of that doesn't mean it would never happen. Um, again, most people have rested their explanations on past practices and it's never actually happened and I think that's uh, important and right to point out. Um, again, I'm trying to take the hard case. I'm trying to take the well still how do we know question. Uh, on elections, um, typically they don't do very well. Uh, Jordan did extremely well in 1989. The Islamic Action Front, well, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamic Action Front wasn't formed yet, but the same group won uh, between independents that were kind of affiliated with the party and the, and the Islamists themselves won 40% of the assembly. Um, to my knowledge, that's the highest percentage. Um, and then they've just lost ever since, partly because the government changed the structure of the electoral system particularly to disadvantage them. Um, but even then, from subsequent elections, they just, you know, they hover around 15 to 20% of votes uh, of the seats, I'm sorry. And, you know, and, and talk to a lot of people. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to people who are like, oh, you know, they're riding around in a Mercedes just like everybody else. I mean, they're no different from other politicians. And so, I mean, people are disillusioned with them, you know, very quickly. You know, Islam hu al-hal. Yeah, well, great, thanks, it's not helping us. Um, in refugee camps, I spend a lot of time in camps typically during elections and you know there's just incredible disillusionment with the Islamists for not actually achieving anything when they had opportunities or when they're perceived to have had opportunities. Um, in Yemen the 93 elections which were the first post-unification elections the nobody won a majority there were three major parties the former regime of the north the former the regime of the south and the Islamist party the Islamist party won the second largest bloc but still not a majority um, but it was very much an, a party allied with the North, putting forth an uh, ideological agenda aimed and targeted directly at the socialist agenda. And so in some ways you have to look at them as kind of peril poles to defeat the South. Um, 
and did do that. And in 1994, a year later, there's a civil war and the South is effectively defeated. And what happens after that is that the ruling party of the North no longer really needs the Islamist party as a counterbalance to the South. And they, over the next few years, get systematically shut out of power. They lose ministries, they lose all sorts of influence. And that's the point at which they're, you know, flirting with the idea of allying with the opposition, um, but they never do because being with opposition means being not with power. I don't know if I answered all your questions. I think there were a bunch in there. I tried. Yes? I'm spinning off the last uh, two answers. I'm wondering if it strikes me the, the notion of moderation is the way you look at it when you're looking at it from the perspective of the group. If you're looking at it from the perspective of the state, this is simply where you are and not successful in uh, co-opting or clientelism. I mean, you're talking about the world of crap. When these folks are driving around Mercedes just like everybody else mm-hmm. in the street. Well, then, then what you've really got here, since this is a semi-authoritarian regime that's doing the inclusion, the dynamics have to be vastly different from the democratic regime. Mm-hmm. What you've got is a story about where clientelism, corporatism, or whatever kind of payoff you have, do or don't work, or are or are not made. I characterize as part of it, but neither case is democratic, so I can't compare it, you know, right, with but, the. But the question would be, then, if, if you're, what you're interested in is ideological moderation, how do you separate whether they became ideologically more moderate or whether they simply got richer because they said more moderate things? Um. <clears throat> I'm not sure how the richer part. Did they get bought off and therefore they say nice things that are more moderate and more open to other parties? Or um, did they simply become more moderate? Well, I think the I think the sort of debates that take place within them, you know, and again, these are debates not open to the public. These are, you know, internal party debates, demonstrate, you know, a serious efforts to deal with the issues in terms of what it means to be Islamist. So I think there's evidence of that. There are, I mean, and it's something else I deal with in the book, so, but I don't want to be one of those people that says, oh, I wrote about that elsewhere. Um, but um, the question of money, I mean, I, I, I talk about it in terms of, uh, the, you know, they're very professional upper-middle-class movements. The people that are the elites in the parties are, you know, intermarried and very closely connected with each other and have, you know, long-standing personal relationships with people in the regime that they're, you know, are, are among their biggest priorities, even in Jordan, is to maintain those relationships with the regime. Um They'll spread, you know, the largesse among a particular segment of the society or of the party, um, not the society. Um, but I mean, they've, I mean, they, the Islamic Action Front has always been, you know, very close. I mean, they, they were ministers of education in the 70s, well before inclusion. I mean, you know, these guys didn't really see a change in their fortunes so much in terms of what the families had, et cetera, over that period. I think it's more that public criticism is directed at them now that they see, well, you know, they haven't really done anything different now in ways that were less visible before. Um, but in, within the parties, there's a huge, you know, sort of class question over, you know, privilege and access to elites and who gets to be in a party elite or not. I mean, everybody's intermarried, and that's an important factor, and, you know, I talk about that as well. I cannot possibly have solved everything. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're just tired of me. Well, thank you. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Next year, undoubtedly, we'll have another series, same time, same place.